Let me pray before we dig into God's word. Father God, thank you that we can gather this morning to hear your word. Father, thank you for these words written so long ago. And yet, Father, you speak to us through them. So, Father, we pray that you would take the words of that last song, Father, and answer them. Speak to us this morning, we pray. Change us, transform us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Men will never be free, said French peasants, until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. That was a saying that happened during the the French Revolution. They'd had enough of kings who'd been very extravagant in France. They'd had enough of priests. I really don't think they'd like our passage this morning, would they, with uh, our priest king as we see it here. Well, after last week with that battle with nine kings, you might be thinking that kings are a bad idea, just like the French were thinking. Along with the first kings came the first war. And we were presented with no less than nine bad kings, really, in the last section. Kings, it would seem, bring with them death, suffering and war. And we meet that idea elsewhere in the Bible. When the Israelites ask for a king, God warns them through Samuel that the king will take their sons as soldiers. He'll take the best of their land and produce and he'll treat them like slaves. And the people still go ahead with having a king. But we must be careful about overgeneralizations. Kings are not uh, going to be all bad. In fact, they're going to be quite a big deal in the Bible. Not least because God describes himself in the Bible as a king. What matters, it would seem, isn't the fact of kings, but who your king is. Life under different kings can be very different. And in our passage this morning, we're presented with two very different kings. And we're going to see how they treat Abraham. And through how they treat Abraham, we're going to learn a bit about our true king, God himself. So firstly, Abraham and the king of righteousness. Have a look with me again at verses 17 to 20. And after his return from the defeat of Kedlamea, the king and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet uh, him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the most of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Abraham here is returning from his victory in the north of the promised land. You see that in the verses just before the passage that we're looking at. As he heads back, he's met by two kings in the valley of Sheva. Fittingly, this is known as the Valley of Kings. Uh, it seems perhaps that the, it got the name afterwards, perhaps, uh, because of this very meeting. But later on in the Bible, kings would set up pillars in this valley, a bit like the um, Valley of Kings in Egypt. It became associated with the idea of kings. And the king of Sodom meets him. Apparently, he's escaped the mass kidnapping by the enemy army. And he probably fled to the hills, as we're told that some of them did. He meets Abraham roughly halfway back. And Abraham, of course, has all the people, all the possessions that he recovered from the defeated army. The king of Sodom probably wants to find out what's happened to his people, what's happened to all his stuff. But the action then suddenly swings away from the king of Sodom to another king, the king of Salem. Now, the king of Salem wasn't one of those nine kings. He wasn't involved in the conflict. But he comes out to meet Abraham too. 
and we're told that he is called Melchizedek. Now, if you've looked at the book of Hebrews, uh, you'll know that he's a big figure in the book of Hebrews, but he's only mentioned here and one other time in the Psalms in the Bible. We're not going to preach the whole book of Hebrews this morning, but we are going to see what it tells us about this other king, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. What do we find out about him? Well, we see that he's a king. He's king of Salem. Now, that's almost certainly Jerusalem, a sort of shortened name. Names change over time, don't they? Uh, But here it's called Salem. But his name uh, means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Now, we might think that righteousness has not been a big deal so far in Genesis. It seems more like something that you meet in Romans, doesn't it? The idea of righteousness. But actually, it's going to be a very big deal in the next section. Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, that's Abraham, did, and he counted it to him as righteous. Uh, Righteousness. Zedek. Melchizedek. So this is going to come up in our next section, this idea of righteousness. It's something that Abraham needs. Well, here... We have the king of righteousness. And names mean something in the Old Testament. The kings before him, the people that we had last week, I didn't tell you what their names meant, but here are some of them. Bera means son of evil. That was the king of Sodom. Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, means with wickedness. uh, Amraphel means speaker of darkness. Now that probably means that the author has slightly altered their names to make a point. They were probably nicknames. Because you have to have very cruel parents, wouldn't you, to call your kids with, e- with, with evil or with wickedness. But uh, here we have a good name, the king of righteousness. And we see his righteousness in the way that he acts towards Abraham. He brings out bread and wine. Now we're going to be sharing bread and wine later this morning. Uh, we do that every first Sunday of the month, but it, it fits quite well here. All the commentaries say this is not communion. This is not... Uh, communion. And it's true, this is not communion that we have here as Melchizedek brings out the bread and the wine. But it's a bit of a coincidence though, isn't it? Bread and wine were staple foods in Abraham's day, as they were in Jesus' day. That's why Jesus chose those simple elements to remind us that he supplies our daily needs. That actually gives us everything that we need for life. He didn't choose caviar and whiskey, for example. He chose things that people have, bread and wine. So Abraham, uh, sorry, being brought to Abraham by Melchizedek is the things that he needs. He's giving him supplies. After all, if you think about it, it it's incredibly kind of the king of Salem, of Melchizedek, to do this. After all, he wasn't even involved in the battle, was he? And yet he brings provision for Abraham and his troops. So perhaps in a funny way, this is a picture of communion, not directly, but in that he provides for Abraham's needs. He meets his needs with generosity and kindness. And that's a picture of what we see in communion, isn't it? As Christ offers himself to us. So we're told that he is a king and he's a king of righteousness, a good king. We're also told that he's a priest. Now we talked about firsts in the Bible last week. Well, this is the first mention of a priest in the Bible. And in one sense, he becomes a model for all the priests that follow. He's held up in the Bible as a, as a model priest, if you like. So he's a king and a priest. Now, most cultures separate the two, don't they? There's all sorts of problems later on in the Old Testament when kings try and take on priestly roles. So Saul makes a sacrifice and God rejects him as king. 
King Uzziah tries to offer incense in the temple and is struck with leprosy. The only time really after this that a king and a priest truly come together is in Jesus, our king and great high priest. Now, a priest is a go-between between God and man, a mediator. We had that word as uh, one of our big words that ended in shun last week, mediation. And in the new covenant, we all have one high priest, Jesus Christ. And every believer is a priest under him. And it's important that we get this distinction that this is pointing us to Jesus, our one priest. Because it means that I am not your priest, if you're a member of Bethel this morning. Jesus is your priest. It's through him that we have a relationship with God. But at this point in history, there were other priests. And he's a priest of the true God. We'll meet pagan priests later, but here we have a true priest. Who appointed him as priest? We don't know. What were his qualifications for priesthood? We don't know. Later, being a descendant of Levi was necessary. But not here. Levi hadn't even been born. So he's a priest of a completely different order. An older one. A greater one. And one that has Jesus as one of its members. And this points us to something. A point that's made in Hebrews 7.7. It points us to the fact that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham. It's a bit hard to believe when you think of all the things that are said about Abraham, all the promises that were made to him. Yet it's clear in this passage that he is. He blesses Abraham, not the other way round. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything, not the other way round. So great does this man seem to be that Abraham would do all these things that the Jews historically believe this man to be Shem, son of Noah, Abraham's great, 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 great grandfather, I think that's right, who lived to the ripe old age of 600. That would mean that he'd still be alive at this point in history, but this was not the land where the Shemites settled, according to the Bible. These were Hamites, descendants of his brother. It would be strange if this was Shem for Moses to omit that detail. I mean, he's mentioned Shem by name before. Why not now? And part of the point in the New Testament about the uniqueness of Melchizedek is that he has no genealogy. We don't know who his parents were. He has no death record, so it seems like he continues forever. That wouldn't fit if this was Shem, because we know who his parents are. We know his age. We know his death. What makes this man great is not his family pedigree, it's the fact that he's priest of God Most High. That name's used in the Bible by non-Jews for the Lord, for Yahweh. It's confirmed in verse 22 when Abraham uses the same word for the Lord, he puts the two together. It's not unreasonable though that the true worship of God still existed in the nations at this point. After all, we've just made the point, there were only one generation away from Noah and the flood. There are still survivors from the ark alive. Jerusalem seems to be a small enclave of the true worship of God at this point. Could it be that this place is going to be significant in the future? Could it be pointing us to that? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, of course it will be, won't it? This place will become the focus of God's saving purposes for the whole world. So much the glorious future that God has prepared for us... It's called the New Jerusalem. 
Well, here is its first mention, an island in a pool of idolatry where the true God is worshipped. Well, Melchizedek recognises that the Lord is with Abraham. He knows that it's the Lord who's given his enemies into his hand. And he thanks God for defeating his enemies. He sees what we saw last week. We took a bit longer. He seems to get it a bit quicker. That this is God's doing. That God has rescued uh, Abraham and, and his family. He's the one who deserves the glory. And Abraham gives him the glory. Abraham here gives Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils. That's the traditional percentage that's given to priests. And interestingly also to kings as well. But the emphasis here seems to be as Melchizedek as priest. The book of Hebrews uses this to emphasise the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over the Levite one of the Israelites. Levi here gives his tenth, his tithe, to Melchizedek through Abraham, his ancestor. So Melchizedek is even greater, uh, even the priests for the Levites, isn't he? He's even greater than them. So Abraham is great, a towering figure in the Bible, yet here is someone even greater. It's a bit like Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan this morning. Um, But you, you know Sherlock Holmes is supposed to be a genius. And you get this idea that he's absolutely amazing and, you know, he seems to solve all these puzzles. And then it just drops in that he's got this older brother, Mycroft, who's even better, who's even greater, who's even cleverer. Well, it's a bit like that here. We've got Abraham, who's great. Well, hang on, though. There's someone even greater. And that points us, actually, to someone even greater. So Melchizedek here is is the king of righteousness. He's this amazing king, even greater than Abraham. And then Abraham meets another king. Abraham and the king of burning. Have a look at 21 to 26. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana and Eshol and Mamre take their share. So Abraham stands there. He's just been blessed by Melchizedek. Up comes Bera, the king of Sodom. The name of Sodom means burning. That's why we've got the king of burning. What's going to happen? Will, will he come and bless him as well? Will he come and thank him? Will he... Well, no, the king of Sodom tries to strike a deal with Abraham. No blessings, no thanks, no provisions. It's down to business. You take the goods, give me the people. The fact actually is that by custom, the goods were already Abraham's. So he's not offering anything extra. It's like a rescuer's fee in those days. The king of Sodom offers him nothing than what he already has and seems to try and strike a deal. It's a devilish trick. We've already seen it in Genesis. In Genesis, we saw Adam and Eve being offered to become like God. When actually, they were already made in God's image, weren't they? In the Gospels, we see the devil doing similar things. Offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world, which would be his anyway. But Abraham is having none of this deal. He'll accept the blessing of the king of God, uh, of the, the priest of the God Most High... But he won't accept the king of Sodom and his riches. 
Abraham tells us that he's made a vow to God. That's what lifting the hand uh, signifies. He's vowed that he won't take anything from the king of Sodom. Not even a, a thread, not even a sandal strap about the smallest things you can get. He won't take that route to the future that God has promised him. He will not let the king of Sodom say that he made Abraham rich. But it's not that Abraham wants to be a self-made man. That's not what's going on here. It's actually that Abraham wants to be a God-made man. It's not that Abraham doesn't want to be rich. In fact, we already see that he's already a wealthy man. It's that he doesn't want to be rich that way. He won't take that shortcut. Shortcuts feature prominently in Abraham's life, if you think about it. He's told by God that he'll have a child. But he takes a shortcut, doesn't he? Sleeping with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, and dire consequences follow. But here he refuses the shortcut. He will not get rich with Sodom's wealth. He will be blessed, but God's way, not Sodom's way. All that is taken from the king of Sodom is food for the journey for the trained men and the cut for Abraham's Canaanite defence partners. Abraham accepts willingly what the king of Salem offers, but will have nothing from the king of Sodom. He won't do deals, and he won't take shortcuts. So what does this passage teach us? Well, we have two kings and two choices. This passage is not just there for interesting history. It's actually there to teach us something. What we have here is two paths laid before us. Two options that are presented to us in black and white. Ultimately, there are just two places, two princes, and two prizes. Two places, Salem and Sodom. Salem is destined to become the very dwelling place of God. He will place his temple there, his kings will reign there, it will be known as Zion, the city of the living God. We noted before that Jerusalem becomes the very centre of God's saving purposes for the world. Jesus will die and rise there. The new creation in, in Revelation will be called the New Jerusalem. Salem has a bright future. It truly will one day be the city of peace, as its name suggests. Sodom, on the other hand, is destined for burning. As I said, that's what its name means. The burning fire and sulfur that fall from the sky will become the very picture of hell itself. Those things serve as a picture of the awful future prepared for those who will not bow the knee to King Jesus. So I put two verses on the back of your notice sheet to show you how it's used in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2 verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And Jude 1 verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued natural, unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom's inhabitants don't have a bright future. Sodom's inhabitants will die, and its very name will virtually be used as a curse word. So which one will you align to? Where will you have your citizenship? In Salem or in Sodom? We all start in Sodom, but as many are discovering over the past few months, uh, you can change your citizenship, can't you? You can get a new passport. Do you know over 200,000 Brits 
have applied for an Irish passport over the past three years. But unlike... (laughs) I don't blame them. I've not got any Irish blood, so I've got a little bit of Scott, but um, apart from that, 100% Yorkshire. But uh, we'll get our own passports, that's the way we do it. Um, But unlike our citizenship procedures, there's no such thing as dual citizenship here. You can't be a citizen of Sodom and Salem. You have to choose one or the other. You can't have one foot in Sodom and one foot in Salem. You cannot be in two places at once. And the same is true of our kings, two princes, the prince of peace or the son of wickedness. The king of peace, Melchizedek, points us forward to the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus. That's not a stretch. We're told as much in the New Testament. A huge section of Hebrews is devoted to the ways that Melchizedek points us forward to Christ. He's the forever priest in the order of Melchizedek that's mentioned in Psalm 110. This great priest king is a picture of Jesus Christ, the true priest of the Most High God, the true mediator between God and man, fully God and fully man. So he's even better as a mediator than Melchizedek. And like Melchizedek, he comes to bless. He comes to meet our need. He comes to refresh us. He comes to offer himself to us as the sacrifice that we need, a sacrifice that we remember in bread and wine, which we'll do in a few minutes time so that's one option as your priest uh, sorry as your prince the other option is the son of wickedness that's what the king of Sodom's name means what does he come to do well he comes to do deals he comes to play tricks the king of Sodom comes to bargain not to bless he could not rescue his people could he Abraham had to do it He couldn't bring them back when they were taken away as slaves. He's a small-time guy trying to talk of his power and authority, as though he has any say in what's happening. If anything, he's a picture of the devil. In the Bible, the devil's called the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Deceiving the world, tricking people, blinding people, bringing death to all those who follow him, offering things that are not his to give. Offering shortcuts to believers in exchange for doing things his way rather than God's way. Wicked and cruel and destined for destruction. Those are your choices. But the thing is though that God doesn't come to bargain. He comes to bless. God doesn't offer us deals. He offers us grace. You don't need to make a deal with God. God does not play the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours game. He doesn't need anything from us. We're told in the passage, he's the possessor of heaven and earth. What could we offer him? Not even ourselves can we offer him in a deal. Yes, we are to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, but not as a bargaining chip. We're to do it in response to God's grace and mercy, not to earn it. So the prince of perdition offers you deals. The prince of peace offers you everything by grace. As it says in Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is the gracious giver, there are no deals 
with God. So there are two places, two princes. And then finally, two prizes. Treasure in heaven or treasure on earth. Both kings offer different rewards in our passage. The king of Sodom offers earthly riches. He offers Abraham all the riches of Sodom if he'll just accept the deal. But Abraham doesn't want those things. He isn't living for them. I mean, this is a man who was rich and chose to live in a tent. He was living for something else. Something that the king of Salem was offering. You see, you can live your life the king of Sodom's way. You can amass for yourself treasure on earth and live for that. But in the end, it's destined for burning. All that wealth, all that treasure that he was trying to give to Abraham, or deal with Abraham, went up in smoke. Quite literally, when Sodom was overthrown. You can live for the things of this world, but in the end, you'll be disappointed. Nothing lasts And in the end, it's destined for burning. But the king of Salem offers something different. Treasure in heaven. The king of Salem offers blessing. That might seem quite pathetic compared to what the king of Sodom was offering. You can't stick this on your mantelpiece. You can't post a picture of it on social media. You can't count it or put it on a spreadsheet. But it's more real than the shirt on your back. It's more lasting than all the treasures of the world. I saw an article this week on the seven wonders of the ancient world. Where are they now? Well, six out of the seven are gone. And only the pyramids survive. But it showed you a picture of the pyramids. They used to be all white with gold at the top. And now it's just sort of sandstone. And think about it. People lived and died for these things. Fought wars over them. And now they're just dust. What the king of Salem offers is far better. Solid joys, lasting treasure, as that wonderful hymn puts it. Things that will last. Treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt. Treasure that can never be stolen. Treasure that can't be burned or turned to dust. So what are you living for this morning? The riches of Sodom or the treasures of Zion? What occupies your thoughts and your dreams and your time? Where is home to you this morning, Sodom or Salem? And who are you living for? The Prince of Peace or the kings of this world? A king is not a bad idea, but make sure that you have the right one. And if you have the right one, live for him. Live for the rewards he offers and make his kingdom your home. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we have a priest who is even greater than Melchizedek. Father, thank you that we have a king who is even greater than him. Father, thank you that we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would follow him. Father, we pray that we would live for him. And that, Father, you'd help us to have a loose grip on this world, but a firm grip, Father, on the blessings and the promises that you have given us. Help us to live this out in our day-to-day lives from uh, nine to five, Monday to Sunday. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.